Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Working is supported by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides all kinds of streaming entertainment in the sky, including movies and TV shows, all on your personal devices. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Anne Serrano McLean, and I'm a perfumer. Where are you a perfumer and what's, what's the name of your perfume company? Uh, the name of my perfume company is MCMC Fragrances, and we're based in Brooklyn, New York. What do you think are the skills you need to be a good perfumer? Is also is that the word perfumer? So the actual technical term for the occupation is a nose. And I never use that term because I find it weird. You know, when someone says I'm a nose, all I picture is like a giant nose. So I always say perfumer, but it's perfumer or nose is the proper name for the occupation. Would it, in French, would it be nay? Or do you say nose even in French if you're a French perfumer? Um, you would probably say nay because they never would refer to anything having to do with perfume in English. What are the actual uh, great qualities you need to be a nose? The number one quality is organization. Obvious, I would say organization and creativity because creativity, that's obvious. It's a creative field. The other thing that I discovered super quickly was organization because really what you're making is these super precise formulas. You can kind of picture them like a recipe except down to the 100th of a gram. And you have to keep all of your notes straight because you make different, you make hundreds of drafts of a formula and each one has to be labeled correctly. It's just, it's way more precise and it requires a lot more math than I ever thought it would, which is great because growing up, I was a total nerd and math was like my specialty. Tell me how a perfume is created from your head to the store. Usually I'll begin with a creative brief. In my case, I like to translate actual things that have happened in my life, memories or places or people, and I want to turn that into a fragrance. For me, it's about 
capturing something that I feel is too fleeting or too precious that I need to have memorialized forever into a scent. I think scent and memory is so closely tied and fragrance is the number one way to to get at what it is. So usually I have that idea swimming in my head for a long time. In my case, I would say it's years. The first fragrance I ever made was called Noble, and I had lived in Nepal for four months, and I wanted to create, recreate the feeling of having lived in Nepal for four months. But it wasn't until six years after I had been to Nepal that I started to actually make that fragrance. And I think it's because after all the details kind of wear away, the few hazy important things are what can be turned into ingredients in my mind. Then I have this very specific thing and I create the backbone structure of the perfume. So it goes from this special memory into the very basic structure of the perfume. So say anywhere between two and 10 ingredients that I feel like are necessary to the fragrance. Let me interrupt you for a second. So so you cited one example of the Nepal. What is another example or a couple of other examples of things which would be the creative inspiration for it? A person. So another fragrance I have is called Hunter. It's kind of this like woodsy man fragrance. It's based on a friend of mine growing up whose name is Harrison. He lent me this book called Ishmael, which is about a talking gorilla who talks about nature. And it was it was pivotal in my life. And so Hunter is it's really about like it's a campfire scent. It's about being outdoors. And with Hunter, does it actually, you know, does it smell like Nepal or smell like Hunter or no, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it. That doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it. It has to do with. I guess my romanticized version of what that could be that would be pleasing to somebody else. And like there is a fragrance called Maine also that I make, like the state of Maine. And when I first released it, it was funny because I would see on like perfume blog comments that, oh, this doesn't smell like Maine. And, you know, it's not so literal as that. So go back to the, you've got your two to 10. Tell us about the two to 10 and and continue. So... Then I'll create the sort of like initial backbone for the fragrance. These are these are the ingredients that I can't lose no matter what. You know, if it's, for example, in Nepal, while I was there, I fell in love with jasmine, the Indian jasmine, because that was growing everywhere. There was also, I lived in an apartment building there um, with a Tibetan family, and my room was on the roof. It was a separate little room on the roof. And at night, in the evenings, people would burn garbage. That's how they got rid of their garbage. And so there was this smoky smell outside. Um, And there's an ingredient called vetiver, which is, it's the roots of a grass that are distilled it's from it's native to haiti and it has this really smoky earthy smell and so that for me was that nighttime smoky smell of the trash burning so those two ingredients were essential for me like it had to have indian jasmine and it had to have vetiver and then there are these other smells that i encountered in nepal that were all really pleasant chai for example we drank chai every day incense because the woman that i lived with burned incense every night and so finding what matched that so in the case of the chai there's a synthetic ingredient called heliotrope, which is, it kind of smells like um, marzipan. It's like an almondy smell. That's an ingredient in there. And then for incense, there's kind of myrrh and other resin ingredients. Those ingredients make up the backbone of the fragrance. 
So once I have that, it can't be just those ingredients because a perfume is, it's very technical as well. And that's where you kind of go from kind of like amateur, just mixing things around to like someone who's got the real kind of training behind it because you have to take it from those ingredients to something that's we talk about well-rounded a lot in perfumery and that's kind of one of the things when especially when I was in school and classmates would smell and we were critiquing each other's work we used to say well it's not quite well-rounded usually that means when one ingredient is like too harsh and you can almost like identify it too quickly because I think with perfume it's not literal and you don't want to smell just the ingredients you want to smell more of like this scented atmosphere so once I've got the backbone ingredients, I'm basically just doing technical work after that and mixing in um, all kinds of musks or um, different floral or filler ingredients to round out the fragrance. Let's go back to the ingredients. So how do you get those ingredients? And also, how do you know what the palette of possible ingredients is? I mean, is it just you have smelled everything there is to smell and you've made a list of all of them or there's a catalog? How does that work? <laughs> there, in a way, there is a catalog and I, I, that's that's the way in which I learned it is you basically divide all of the ingredients that are available, which are about 1,500 ingredients. You divide those up into their olfactive families. So if you smell something very basic like orange oil, which is the expressed oil from the peel of an orange, that's a citrus. If you smell basil essential oil, which is steam distilled basil, that's in the green family. Anything that's a flower is in the floral family. And you can further divide it up after that. So there's a rose family, there's a jasmine family, there's a violet family. Once you are familiar enough with the ingredients that you can categorize them right away, it all of a sudden becomes like this system in your head where it's a lot easier to memorize ingredients because that's really the first thing that you need to do is, is memorize from memory all of the ingredients. How do you do that process? That seems incredibly daunting to someone who, who doesn't have that training at all. It's a completely necessary part of becoming a perfumer, if that's someone's goal, is you have to memorize them from memory. It's like if you wanted to become a chef, you just need to know the ingredients that are in your kitchen. You can't not know what flour or eggs are before you can start to bake a cake. It's absolutely essential that you can recall. Like I can recall from my mind right now, if you tell me pink pepper from Kenya, I can imagine that smell in my mind and I can imagine how strong it is because that's the other part of making a formula is you're using different amounts of different components and you kind of need to know how strong it is. So all right, this is fascinating. So if I think about uh, an orange, I, I can conjure in a, as a sense memory what an orange tastes like. When you are conjuring the, the smell of orange oil, are you actually smelling it or is it an intellectual process for you? Um, I kind of imagine that I'm actually smelling it. it, but it's similar to taste. Like it's, if I were eating an orange, you know, I kind of know even the texture of the orange and how the little cells and bits there are. When I'm imagining I can smell something in my head, I can smell up to the nuance of it. Okay. So you've decided on the two to 10 yep. and you've also, you've done the, the kind of magic to round it all out then what do you do? Once I've started this process of rounding it out, I probably have a ton of different trials. 
I've probably adjusted the formula 80 times, I would say. And so it's about choosing which one of those is the right one. But, sorry, but what is a trial? What does that even mean? That you, you have a lab, which is a kind of office, but what is a trial? So a trial is any amount that I've mixed. So picture that I'm writing this recipe and I've got the vetiver, which I've mentioned. I've got the jasmine. I've got the heliotrope and I've got 20 other ingredients. So I've got this list of 25 ingredients and I've got all of these different bottles where I've mixed them in different quantities and I've taken out ingredients and I've put in new ingredients and I know some of them didn't work. I can smell it right away and I think, no, this is not this is not the noble that I pictured in my head. But I've got, say, five that it comes down to. Or maybe sometimes it's one. Sometimes, like with Hunter, like I just knew I made the one mix and I, not the first one, but there was a certain mix that I just knew this is Hunter. Sometimes, like in the case of noble, it comes down to a few of them where there's a slight different nuance. And eventually I just have to choose. I choose the one that I decide is the final one. And that becomes the final formula. That's written in stone. I can throw away all the other ones if I want to because they're basically mess-ups at this point. In order to get from that phase where it's kind of this trial to, in my case, it's really a sellable product, in order to get to that next phase, I have to start making it in bulk. Again, going back to you making the various samples, how, how are you literally making them? Do you have a pipettes? What, what do you use to construct those samples? Um, So I have a digital scale that reads to one one hundredth of a gram. I have small 30 ml bottles. I have all my ingredients lined up in front of me and I have disposable pipettes. And you're just like, I take it you have to be ruthlessly careful like, oh, I really put 48 whatever's in here. Yeah. So I have also like this chart in front of me where I'm writing in exactly what I put in. And I usually, what I'll do is in the first column, I'll write down what I want to put in. So like I was saying, I kind of know the strength of an ingredient. So I'm just going to use totally round numbers here. But let's say I wanted, you make it on a scale of a thousand. You're always working with the total number being a thousand. So let's say I've got my jasmine and I want that to be 200 parts. But then I've got ambroxan which is a synthetic amber ingredient. I want some of that in there too, but it's quite strong and I only want it a little. So let's say I go as small as 0.04 of ambroxan in there. In the second column, I'll write down what actually happened on the scale. uh, Of the pipettes that I use, one drop is usually 0.03. So if I'm trying to do 0.04, it's like sometimes I have to battle. Do I put in one drop? Do I put in two? Do I try to squeeze half a drop in? You know, let's say instead of the ambroxan being 0.04, it's 0.05. That's what I'll write in that second column. So I know going forward when I'm evaluating it that I have to evaluate it based on that. But how could you even get to 0.05 if your pipettes are not calibrated that close i've gotten so good at doing small tiny measures that i can like get a little air in there too wow okay so you've you've made your the the you you have the noble that you know you want what happens when you have that sample what do you do then the packaging is the next step you know i wanted this i wanted it to look it had the packaging and and how it looks has to be a manifestation of the fragrance and it was difficult to 
to arrive at that first round of packaging. Um, I worked with a friend of mine named Paul. He really helped us to get it there. So it was really after I have the formula, it's coming up with a box design. It's coming up with like logos and things like that. Something that we decided to do in our fragrances was put in the story. So we have these inserts that have the story and the batch number in them. Can you read the Nobel one? Yeah. Um, Noble is the first fragrance I ever created. Long before formal training, I was toying with the sensual, intoxicating scent of Indian jasmine absolute and combining it with the fiery, earthy vetiver oil of Haiti. The two ingredients are a symbol of time spent in the beautiful and spiritual country of Nepal. Combined with rich almondy notes of chai tea, burning incense, amber, and musk, the jasmine-centered Noble is a long-lasting floral woody with an ethereal dry-down. What does ethereal dry-down mean? Uh, so dry down is the term for when all the top notes have burned off and you have only the long-lasting base notes left on your skin. And in this case, it was a combination of amber and musks and kind of this really almost like a skin scent, meaning it kind of enhanced your natural smell. Okay, so you've now done the packaging. Are you going to start manufacturing? Yeah. How I do that is I want to make... A thousand milliliters. So like I was saying, we always, you're always working when you're doing that formulation on a thousand. And that's because you, I don't, we just learned it, you know, I learned it that way in perfume school. And then it kind of worked out where that was about the amount of batch that I myself needed for this company. So I make one liter of pure at a time. So I order all the ingredients that cost like hundreds, thousand dollars, depending on the formula, mix that formula. It has to sit for at least two weeks, um, macerating it's called, and then it gets bottled. So it gets diluted in alcohol and then it has to sit for another two weeks in a process called maturing, where then the ingredients mix with the alcohol. If you don't do the maceration and maturing process, this fragrance doesn't last as long on your skin. So it's important technical step. It gets bottled. Uh, my sister, my mom, and I put labels on it. We package it, and we send it to our stores. When you're macerating and, and letting it sit, or do you like sit and shake it up, something like that, to get it all to mix, or just it's all done very gently? Um, no, I usually do mix it pretty well. After I've mixed all the raw materials together, it gets a really, really good shake. Have you ever spilled a raw? Spilled? You're like, oh my gosh, I've just spilled my entire batch. I haven't spilled an entire batch, but I've done things where, you know, maybe I was off, maybe I didn't drink my coffee. I've put in the wrong amount of something in a batch, and I have to throw away the entire batch, and that's devastating. The Working Podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides more streaming entertainment in the sky. Movies, shows, TV, all on your personal devices. Additionally, Delta's long-haul fleet not only has more flatbed seats, but more flatbed seats available with direct aisle access. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. And now back to my interview. So I, I'm going to tell you a horror story here because okay. it's going to freak you out. But I have a high school friend who was in a car accident and he lost his sense of smell in the car accident. So do you do things to protect your nose? I take it you're not like snorting cocaine at all hours of the day and night. But are there other things you do to make sure your chief organ is intact? I don't smoke. Um, if I know I'm going to be making perfume, if I know I'm going to be actually working on a formula the night before, 
I won't drink any alcohol whatsoever, and I'll try to stay away from really strong foods like garlic and things. If I know I'm making perfume the next day, I have to have a really good day the day before. Like, I have to be really well rested. And what happens if you're not? It's I'm just not focused, and it's a, it's a really deep process in the sense that once I'm kind of in the zone and making perfume it's so nuanced you know when you're smelling them you're smelling them on a strip of paper you have to analyze it so much that it's very mentally exhausting okay now you've created a whole bunch of bottles of perfume how do you turn that into actual dollars so we sell them on our website mcmcfragrances.com and then we sell them in about a hundred stores in the united states how we got into all those stores and how we get traffic to our website is a miracle to me. In the beginning, it was really local. So my sister and I started, we started doing, um, we did like the Brooklyn Flea. We did these like, we were in person selling them. A few stores in Brooklyn started picking them up. We get press on them. Um, People buy them. And that for me is the most gratifying thing that people want to buy these perfumes. Let's linger on this question of how you went from being someone who makes perfumes to actually having a business out of it. So when did you finish making your first perfume? I graduated from perfume school in December of 2009. By April of 2010, I had three perfumes ready to go. And can you just show up at the Brooklyn Flea and say, I have some perfumes now, please buy them? That summer, we went to the Brooklyn Flea. We got a booth for $80. It ended up being the hottest day of the summer, and our perfumes started to change color in the heat. It was super hot, and we had never done this before, so we didn't have an umbrella or anything. Perfume is really volatile. And so by noon, I think our perfumes had turned orange. We waited till we had made our $80 back, and we left. Okay, that doesn't sound like a good start. So what was the second effort? (laughs) The second effort, I did a Mother's Day special. I guess that was was prior to being outside at the Brooklyn Fleet. But for Mother's Day, the very first year, I said I would do custom labels on the perfume. You could could put your mom's name. And at that time, Daily Candy wrote about, you know, a special Mother's Day fragrance. And I guess that's how we got our first wind of business, really. So if Bloomingdale's or I don't know what the came to you and said, we just all we want is MCMC perfume. That's the the thing. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? That would be great. I mean, we now we're at a place where we have the capability to manufacture really large amounts. We work with a facility in Pennsylvania. That's all they do is make perfume in large amounts. So yeah, we can do that. Is that what you aspire to, or do you aspire to have a you know a small Brooklyn artisanal perfume business? We really built our following on being kind of small, and all the stores that we sell to now are pretty special and niche boutiques. So that whole question has been a part of the business that has been sort of this like almost like a struggle for me because as a creative person. It doesn't matter to me in a way who my audience is. I want everybody to be able to enjoy it. From a business standpoint, 
I have to think about the longevity of the brand and what stores make sense to carry the brand so that it always has this sort of like appeal. And so that's something we're struggling with all the time when we get new store inquiries is basically does this match who other people think we are? So if Walmart came to you? (laughs) If Walmart came to us for now, that would have to be a no. One thing that may distinguish you from other people who have the same job as you is you literally are a solo artist. If you were making, if you were working for Big Perfume, would there be this kind of independence or or is a scent created by a group? A scent is created by a group and there are, there's the nose, there's a whole job title called the evaluator, who's just the person that smells the perfume and basically critiques it. And then there's the marketers, and the marketers communicate with the client, then they communicate with the evaluators, and you're basically kind of like told what to do. I mean, that's the harshest way of putting it. And in my case, I hate sharing a work in progress. On the one hand, I start to feel very insecure. If you criticize me right when I'm in the middle of working on something, I, I really start to double think it. I also feel that people... Other people can't speak to me about perfume because they don't know the language. And there's a whole language that goes along with smelling something. People, you know, even just customers will say like, oh, I really hate musky scents. But I have no idea what they're talking about. And they have no idea what they're talking about. And so I don't like to let anybody in during that process and only when I'm done will I show my friends and family the perfume. If everyone really hates it, then I know it's a fail. But otherwise, I don't show people until I'm done. Not at, So there's no like focus group at all? No, no, there's no focus group. You know, just recently we created these three fragrances for anthropology that will be coming out in about six months or so. And those are important to have more mass appeal because they're going to a larger number of stores and a larger number of customers. And my sister did not smell them until we were in the final presentation meeting with them. No one had smelled them? Yeah, no one had smelled them. If you're presenting a perfume to, to anthropology, to the buyers there, they're not expert. They don't know the language. They may know it better than a civilian does, but they don't, they're not like you. How do you bridge that gap? I usually have a presentation that I take along, which is like within that there's something called the olfactive triangle for each, which is basically a triangle so that you can show the top, the middle, and the base notes. And I even have illustrations for those. Like if there's vanilla in it, there's like, and I have a photo of an actual vanilla bean in there. It's like a mood board too. I have like an inspiration board. Unless unless people are kind of looking at that, I don't think that they, their mind doesn't grasp the fragrance if I were to show them a fragrance blindly. I have to sort of explain what it is. And, okay, wait, we have three perfumes here, three of your perfumes, Noble, Hunter, and Maine. So let's let's just smell some of them. Okay. So this one is Noble, which I talked about before. I'll spray it on here for you. How would you describe that to someone who knows a lot about perfume? If I were talking to someone who knows a lot about perfume, I would kind of emphasize the natural jasmine that's in there because there's kind of like, not unprecedented, but there is an unusual amount of real natural jasmine absolute from India. 
uh, natural jasmine has this component in it. It's like an, it's a naturally occurring chemical called indole, which has almost like I would say a mothball kind of smell, something kind of like a fuzzy quality to it. But it's very comforting. That coupled with the smoky and there's a lot of musk in it as well is something that it smells different on your skin and it it smells kind of nice and good and warm over a long period of time. You were saying to me that when you smell this, you can disaggregate all the smells in your head. When I... When I first started falling in love with different perfumes and really exploring and going to stores and, you know, smelling perfumes, what I loved was that they were this cloud of a nice smell. And now, because I just know ingredients so well, when I smell a perfume, the first thing I do, my my mind jumps to it, is I start to pick apart what ingredients are in there. I can't separate myself from doing that thing and just enjoy the smell. If you were going to take Noble and and try to get it into Walmart, say you wanted to get it into Walmart, what are the things that you would have to do to make it a super, super mass market kind of perfume? So in general, mass market perfumes, basically, they're a little sweeter. And basically, they're kind of like predominantly floral, with the most popular category being fruity floral. Personally, I really like wood ingredients, especially in a women's fragrance. I, I find it kind of like, I find that like adding a wood ingredient in, which is kind of like unexpected and almost tomboyish is like so nice, you know? In any case, if I were to take this to Walmart, if I were to take Noble and make it a mass fragrance, I would probably just eliminate all the woods altogether, keep the jasmine and just add some fruits on top. And when you speak that way, are you... Are you derisive of that kind of perfume or it's just like a different thing? It's just a different thing. I guess personally, I don't totally love a sweet smell myself, but that's just kind of, that's just a personal thing. And I, it was funny because last summer I taught a perfume making class to a group of 12, 16 year old girls at this community organization called El Puente. And they, all they wanted to make was sweet smells. And I realized, you know, that's just kind of what girls like. And I think you get introduced to that smell early on, like a bath and body works type of thing when you're like 16. And in a way, you don't ever really grow out of it because that's all the market keeps introducing to you. Perfume is oddly, even though it's a we perceive it as a luxury or as a kind of some, something that's not essential to living, it's one of the oldest things that we as humans do. I mean, I think there's a strong sense that we anointed ourselves and made ourselves smell better forever. Why do you think it's fundamental? It's very pleasurable. I don't know why it's something we kind of ignore these days. I think visual and taste really took over at some point, and those are the two things that, you know, society, like, says that they need to have in their lives. But one of the reasons that I fell in love with perfume was because it was kind the sense of smell was this ignored thing, and it feels... It feels really luxurious to kind of do something different in that sense. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to Tom Tolles, the editorial cartoonist for The Washington Post. He gets up so early to start these cartoons, you are not going to believe it.
Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 